My humanity is bound up in yours, for we can only be human together. Desmond Tutu. Bearing Witness, part of the Racial Reckoning Project, is a reflective dive into the events unfolding in this season of racial upheaval and, we hope, change. I'm Reverend Anthony Galloway. And I'm independent journalist Georgia Fort. As we begin this show, I want to uh, let our audience know that this is officially our second to last episode of Bearing Witness. And so as we talk with our guests today and we get into uh, some of the events and the developments in the trial of Kimberly Potter and other issues with Ms. Georgia, I want to thank you for having been with us in these community check-ins. So let's get started with our second to last episode of Bearing Witness. This week, as like we started out, we are in the space of reliving one of the tragedies that we experienced um, with the shooting of Dante Wright through the trial of Kimberly Potter. Um, there's been a lot of developments and, and folks have been watching everything from the seating of this jury to, of course, who's going to talk and whether and even the question of whether or not uh, Kimberly Potter would 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 take the stand herself. You know, we have recently come through the acquittal of of Kyle Rittenhouse and the conviction of those who murdered Ahmaud Aubrey. There's a lot of attention about how not only how this process goes, but again, looking at face uh, looking right into the face of what the outcome is going to be. What does this mean for our society? There's a lot of questions that folks are having as we go through yet again a round of reliving this experience. I was there, Miss Georgia, when we um, when we uh, were were out trying to cover different things, I remember being there at the vigil for the family, um, along with other clergy, helping to hold space for them to have time at the memorial site, and that they had taken the spare fist um, mm-hmm. to the monument site. There's a lot going on, so 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 catch us up because I know you've been wall to wall trial coverage. Um, yet again as we started out. So 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 catch us up on what you've been experiencing witnessing this. Well, Anthony, I know that there was a very emotional first week for the beginning of the trial with Dante Wright's mother taking the stand, the young woman who was in the vehicle with Dante Wright when he was fatally shot. She took the stand and some of the responding officers, you know, they took the stand as well. The footage we saw of uh, from their body cameras revealed a lot. I know some folks didn't realize that Dante Wright crashed into another car after he was shot. Some folks didn't know that there was an officer who was trailing behind that car he crashed into. And when that officer got out, he drew his gun on the young lady uh, who was in the car with him, demanding that Dante Wright put his hands up not knowing that he was unresponsive or at that point maybe even dead. Um, And so a lot of evidence to take in, a lot of new information, uh, but just hearing the emotional testimony of Katie Wright was hard. Um, and, and hearing the young woman who was in the vehicle with him, knowing she was stuck in that car with him for at least 10 minutes after he died, uh, you know, it was just, it, it was really hard, you know, and Anthony, these trials always um, also bring forth a lot of information out about the person who is deceased that 
a lot of times um, is not complimentary for them. And so in our community, we hear this a lot, you know, that this isn't the Dante Wright trial. This is the Kimberly Potter trial. And we should be examining evidence, uh, you know, based on her actions, not based on the past of uh, the individual who's no longer here. And so it's been re-traumatizing for our community, I, I think, in a lot of ways to have to relive that day and to hear all of this evidence um, that, you know, people weren't aware of contributing to the incident, but also contributing to Dante Wright's um, past. You know, our, our task is is to do some contextualizing of, of what happens week by week throughout these moments and then also to check in with community. You know, some of the parishioners at the church I pastor in Duluth um, had very we're showing signs of real deep apprehension coming in yet again, um, mostly around what's going to happen along the the thread that you just shared there. Um, in terms of the besmirching of of Dante Wright's character, especially um, when the defense take uh, com- comes forward, just because of what we've seen in past trials, um, are, are you are you seeing that even as we we learn more, you know, about Dante Wright and the prosecution's case? Um, here, are, are are you anticipating that the defense is going to try to take a similar tact to, in in the case of of the murder of George Floyd? Are you seeing kind of signs that? Are there any hints that we're seeing that the defense is going to try to take that tactic? Well, what I I do think people can anticipate is them portraying this as a, a full on accident and. Um, we we've already heard um, some foreshadowing of that happening with Kimberly Potter expected to take the stand and in the jury instructions that have been published on the Hennepin County Court website there is a one lone page of instructions on top of other instructions there's one lone page that has one sentence that says just because someone you know has um, an accident doesn't mean that they've committed a crime. And so I think more so than in the case of uh, Derek Chauvin, this, the defense is leaning into that this was accidental. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and obviously in the case with Derek Chauvin, for him to use excessive force, what was determined excessive force for nine minutes and 29 seconds was not accidental. Um, the prosecution in that case was able to prove that it was intentional and excessive. Mm-hmm. So in this case, you know, the defense is is really leaning in on she made a mistake and um, the chief of police also contrary in the Derek Chauvin case, is going to back her. Mm. You know, with Chauvin, we saw Arredondo take the stand and um, testify against Chauvin. In this case, we're expecting the former Brooklyn Center police chief to actually testify for Kimberly Potter's decision. So, I mean, just setting the context, this is a very different case with very different circumstances. And so, you know, one of the the interesting um, conversations that that has have been had in some of the community spaces I've been, and even um, doing some work in New York, where folks are like, "So you know, so 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 tell us more," um, you know, trying to grapple with the fact that there are some very different circumstances at play here. Um, and I guess one of the things that were on folks' minds is 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 what are we what are you seeing in particular on the ground in terms of 
what this case represents in terms of suggestions for what should be different. Well, you know, Anthony, Minneapolis was ground zero after George Floyd was murdered. And there were so many conversations about change and police accountability, you know, now being a year and a half, almost two years past that, this trial is a continuation of that conversation. What happens when an unarmed Black man is killed by police in Hennepin County, right? And I know people might look at what happens in Minneapolis very different than what happens in St. Paul, but like collectively as a community, this is the Twin Cities area. Brooklyn Center is a part of our metro community. And so all of these cities, while they might be separated by um, city and and county governments, uh, we we commute from home to work um, between these different areas, and sometimes we have our kids are competing against kids in these other school districts, and so it's all interconnected, you know. And so I feel like this trial is a continuation of this larger conversation about police accountability because it was so high profile because Dante Wright was fatally shot in the middle of the Chauvin trial. The world uh, saw this happen, and. Um, that was that moment, I feel like, where the community uh, said, you know, see, nothing's changed. Even though we're in the middle of the Chauvin trial, we still had another unarmed black man in our community that that was killed at the hands of, of law enforcement. And so this is a continuation of that conversation. Um, and obviously the, the big vote that we had this fall was a continuation of that conversation. But also, Anthony, we saw... Uh, over the last week or so, Arredondo come out publicly and say that he is not going to be holding that position anymore. And so these are all, um, you know, things that people are following, uh, people who are passionate about police accountability and people who uh, really felt like they wanted change in those areas. You know, it's it's an interesting time yet again when we as we've talked with community members about the the what instability brings forward. Um, in the sense of instability, there there's a very interesting um, nuanced contextual story for Chief Arredondo and the uh, police chief in St. Paul who was also and, retiring, and the Hennepin County Sheriff who um, publicly admitted that he <laughs> was drinking and driving when he got into a one person crash. Y so you know, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's 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 interesting the 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 pattern that there's there's never just one thing at a time, um, and that has been made very clear by not just your coverage but even the but also the coverage of community members. So so you know before before we bring on our on our guests, I'm I'm I'm, I'm curious, Miss Georgia, as as we again come back to so what what will be different and what has been what is different now than when we began this journey. Um, and what are you seeing down the, down the pipeline? We've seen some, you know, small legislative changes. We we see um, we've seen some some things not go. We've seen some some legislation not make it through, um, and folks have been 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 concerned about that. We've seen um, uh, uh, the death of children as as violence continues to uh, continue to, to to rack parts of our community. We saw. Um, you know, major cases elsewhere across the country um, happen. Um, you know, we we got Dante Wright in the in the same week that we were awaiting the the the, the 
um, verdict in the in the Chauvin trial. So th- there's a lot of compounding things. There's a lot that has happened in the last several months <laughs> as we began this journey down. I'm I'm curious as you do a kind of a look back. Um, what are some things that you're starting to crystallize and take away from 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 this season that we've had here on Bearing Witness? That I mean, this will be a season that is is talked about in 20 years from now. That the decisions that are being made now are laying the foundation for what will be. And so I still feel like we are in the center of a historic era. Um, and, uh, you know, what exactly will come from it, I, you know, that's to be determined. But it's undeniable that we have uh, a number of members in our community who are advocating for things to change, not just in terms of police accountability, um, police reform, but also within the criminal justice system. Because when you look back even, um, you know, 10 years ago in Minnesota, it was unlikely that an officer would even be charged in instances of fatal uses of force. And so there has been um, some progression for those advocating for police accountability. Um, You know, on the other side of that, we've seen a historic amount of officers retire from this profession because of uh, what has has happened, right? And so now they have to figure out how are they going to recruit and staff the police department outside of that, yeah, historic amounts of violence. We are neck to neck in in terms of our numbers with the amount of homicides we saw when Minneapolis was, deemed murderapolis. Mm. And so it's all of these things, as you said, compounding. And so for me, I just, I feel like it's undeniable that we're in a historic time, all things considered. Mm. And I, I just hope that despite resistance that we have faced in this community, that people who are hoping for change that produces more equitable outcomes for people of color. I just, I truly hope that those people who are advocating for that continue to stand up and um, that they're relentless in their pursuit. Because regardless of if we're a journalist, if we are a radio announcer, if we're a police officer, regardless of what profession we have, if we are a person of color, we will be affected if we don't get those changes, we will be affected if we do get those changes. And so I, you know, I try to present the stories and the information from a neutral standpoint, leading with the facts. But at the end of the day, I'm a black woman. And if we don't get change, I am not exempt from the disparities, the inequities, and the problems that has led our community to this point. Thank you for doing that look back, Georgia, because um, I think it's important that your work bearing witness, literally, as one of the lead journalists of this project, um, has been able to give that contextual nuance and to ask questions that we don't necessarily get see asked in mainstream media sources. Um, we had uh, Freddie Bell on previously, who who was one of the impetus of the racial reckoning project and, and one of the essential pieces that needed to be here. But 
one of the other piece, essential pieces that needed to be here was the Minnesota Humanities Center, in particular, the CEO of the Minnesota Humanities Center, uh, Kevin Lindsay, who um, came early on and is, is one of the folks who made this uh, amazing project to cover and bear witness through the journalism, through the check-in with community here on bearing witness and all the pieces around it. And so I want to bring in our guest, Kevin Lindsay, who, who um, I think, Kevin, were you the first guest that we had on Bearing Witness? Mm-hmm. You were either the first or the second. He was. No, he was the first. You you were the first guest. So so I, I love it as we think about the the kind of bookends. You know, this is our se- our second to last episode of Bearing Witness in this project. And so I think it's apropos to bring you in and, and, and talk to you a little bit as you as you hear um, uh, Georgia kind of recounting what's happening and the, what developments are, are, are there in the in the Potter trial. And you heard us talk a little bit about as we look back uh, a little bit. I'm, I'm curious what's what was been coming to your mind as you hear as you um, as you as you talk about as you as you heard us recap some of those things. Well, first off, Anthony and, and Georgia, thank you so much again for inviting me to be a part of this conversation of, around bearing witness. And also let me congratulate um, you and Ali as well. Uh, for the outstanding work that you have been doing uh, in this space. It has really uh, been a blessing for us, I think, in Minnesota to have the three of you uh, do great work within this space. A lot of the insights that that Georgia have shared with your audience are very similar to the insights that I have as well. Um, This case uh, that we're currently dealing with I don't think it is going to be actually one in which you can kind of take a look at it and say um, what happened in Chauvin can easily be transferable and we can clearly see a path or a line forward from Chauvin to Potter to be able to say, yes, we know what the end result will be. I think obviously the police chief um, testifying in this case on behalf of the, the former officer, I think the fact that she was allowed to retire as well is significant. <laughs> Um, and I think um, the, the the idea that um, we have newspapers that are, are sharing information and kind of coloring the way in which maybe the community might be thinking about an accident very differently than someone being on someone's neck for the intolerable amount of time that uh, now convicted uh, murderer uh, Derek Chauvin did uh, is just it feels very different. And I think we need to be prepared that that jury might come to a very different conclusion um, using mm-hmm. uh, thinking about it in that way. Um, I also think that how we talk about victims, and I really appreciate uh, your work here, um, this idea that in order to achieve justice, there has to be such a, a huge burden born by the African-American community, um, which does not have to be born, unfortunately, uh, by many other communities. Um, we are constantly having to re-educate, uh, rehabilitate, um, and ensure that the victim does not get dragged through the mud within these types of cases. So the work that you've been doing here, I think, uh, has really been illustrative of that, and and hopefully that will change the way in which people think about these cases going forward. And then I think the last thing is, um, is this about specifically police officers and interactions with African-Americans, 
or is this a larger conversation about public safety and how do we think about public safety and what does that mean? So again, highlighting uh, some of the stories, even about how we select juries, how we think about other things within the community, this uh, conversation about raising your voice and being able to protest, I think is, is really significant as well. Um, you can't, in a, in a democracy, uh, truly fully be a participant if you don't have the ability to, to raise your voice and to be advocate for yourself. And unfortunately, when issues are tough like this, um, it feels like the larger society to some degree is willing to tolerate the silencing or the muffling of our voice um, as we seek to ensure full citizenship. Yeah. And, you know, with that being said, you know, when you contrast the verdict in the case of Kyle Rittenhouse, traveled state lines, killed two protesters, shot another, was found not guilty. You contrast that uh, with, you know, even what happened here in Minneapolis with a car driving through and the police saying that they're not going to follow up with that driver because the protest didn't have a permit and so no crime was committed. You're, you're seeing these examples where um, the attacks against people who are standing up and using their First Amendment right for Black causes, for Black life. And you see, you're seeing these attacks against those people and there's no consequence or repercussion. It, In some instances, it, 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 it's, it seems like it's discouraging people. It's, it's creating dangerous environments for people to advocate on these causes. From, from a legal standpoint, because I know you have a legal background, you know, what... What advice could you give to people who want to safely use their their First Amendment right to protest, but they're concerned with these, you know, recent instances and, and attacks? Well, I will say that this is um, a very interesting time in which we find ourselves in. And I appreciate the work that you're doing, Georgia, to highlight some of the issues and challenges that protesters have. Um your comments about speaking out, and especially as an independent journalist, getting information about where protesters can protest. I do appreciate the work of uh, some cities as well about working with groups that want to raise their voice to make the permitting process, uh, to get a, a, a right to permit, to, to protest simplified, uh, goes a long way as well. But there's no doubt that given uh, the, course, the court, court case that is currently pending before the Supreme Court about um, the right to bear arms or the right to carry arms is whether that's a constitutionally protected right, um, potentially could have a dramatic chilling effect on the ability to protest, especially in light of the Rittenhouse uh, decision. Um, it's just unfortunately too early to tell what's the best strategy going forward, I think, until we see how the Supreme Court comes down in that case. That's a, that's a very interesting point. Um, you know, there's, there's, you know, I'm, as a, as a pastor, one of the things that I am and in, in confronted with, 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 from parishioners and community members often are the anxieties that come about with the legis some of the legislative um, 
uh, fights and battles that are in front of us. Um, and as we near the anniversary of Sandy Hook and some of the vigils that are getting ready, that question around the Supreme Court case definitely came up um, amidst other concerns um, around and, and this notion of criminalizing um, criminalizing the things that will that 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 and the activities that are trying to produce changes um, that may make us uncomfortable. But one of the other things that are right here on, that are, that are right in the precipice here is discomfort being at the same level of real data that we see that is take that is resulting in death and real harm. This is a this is a, a a disturbing pattern for me that I think the work of the Humanity Center and the work of telling these stories and humanizing these stories becomes so important. Is is we're in this dangerous space of somebody's um, sense or or assumption of discomfort being put and defended at the same level as the actual results, the actual negative impacts that we see physically, emotionally, and all these other things. Um, and it's a, it is a false dichotomy that is problematic to me. And so I'm curious um, where you see points, you know, where you see this kind of cutting through, where you see places that are trying to, to shatter that, that are trying to, to, to combat that in, from your vantage point. No, we, we live in a, in a time where there is a tremendous amount of cognitive dissonance. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, what most psychologists would tell you is trying to directly address that sometimes is not the most effective way for the individual uh, to be able to hear and be able to see facts and to be able to reason toward a viewpoint, which is shared by more individuals <laughs> as to the facts that are before them. So this is why it's really important for all of us regardless of the situation where we're in, whether that's family, whether that's our church, whether that's our place of work, to be engaged in a way that is not threatening to the individual, but continues to ask and continues to prod as it relates to why people hold on to certain beliefs or why are these certain facts ones that they find comfort within. Um, it, it's clear that in the last 10 to 15 years, we've had more of a segregation of who we listen to, right? Mm -hmm. So to this extent, if I only listen to and I stay within my bubble, right, it becomes harder for me to accept other views, other facts that I potentially see if it's not agreed upon by the people who are kind of in my opinion or conversation bubble. But the challenge, of course, right, is that it's comforting to, right, to always be in that space, but I think for the vast majority of us, we see a breakdown. We see cognitive dissonance taking hold at a whole different level than what has really happened. Uh, it's hard to imagine a time period where it has been more evident and more problematic than it has now been in our country. That's why I really appreciate uh, projects like this. I really appreciate artists. Uh, creating art to speak to this moment and challenging people's assumption. I really appreciate teachers and educators who are wait, willing to wade in into this space and try to change the way in which folks think about these respective issues. And then I respect uh, tremendously the people who might not even be in what we would traditionally consider positions of leadership or authority wading in because um, it really will take all of us um, to get to a better place. 
I'm curious, you know, what your thoughts are. I mean, obviously you've taken action by uh, investing and supporting projects like the Racial Reckoning Project. What what do you think other people can do? What are some other uh, measures that individuals in the community, leaders in the community can take to help move the needle forward on some of these issues? Yeah, so I, I think projects like what, what you had, um, we have a project called How Can We Breathe? And we were very fortunate uh, among humanities organizations to receive an award for that. Um, I mention it because I think it is a good example um, where you have uh, a moderator, in this case, Rose McGee, a sweet potato comfort pie, uh, someone who is open, encouraging, bringing people into the conversation. Then uh, we had a little bit of a recipe of food. It doesn't have to be sweet potato pie, but Rose would encourage that for sure. So in the four cities that we partnered with, uh, we broke bread. Uh, in the form of sweet potato pie with folks. So it was another opportunity to be engaged, create dialogue, friendship outside of the particular issue that brought us all together. And then you got to stay with it. So now after we did How Can We Breathe, we're now back in these four cities where we had these conversations virtually, but we're still back in those cities now um, with love and struggle and right on race. So now it's another opportunity to come back to it. It's a time to be reflective and allow people to write and also to communicate with others how we move forward on this racial reckoning time. Now, um, not everybody will have the ability to sew together a couple of events like that, but they might be able to partner or collaborate with things that are going on in their community, or they might be, as uh, Pastor Galloway would say, get involved within churches or churches being connected in a way. Um, I see that as a pathway forward. Um, we, we can't underscore the, the point that um, we're almost in the third period of recon, uh, recon, uh, reconstruction within our, in our country. Um, this third cycle of reconstruction, for me, um, I look at it after slavery. I look at the civil rights and I look after our first black president. Those time periods, America had to really struggle. Well, who would really, what is really, it means to be an American. Wow. And, and I think uh, within this space, uh, I'm at least encouraged, you know, the first two instances, the steps weren't as big, but I'm hoping that it'll be a quantum leap here after. Mm. The, the desert that we have been in and the wilderness that we have been in uh, for the last uh, five, six years. Hopefully we will we will be in a better place. Brother Lindsay, you just mm-hmm. my, historically mic'd drop the house with that one. I had never I had never yet connected the periods of reconstruction fo- you know that that followed the advancements right mm-hmm. so we have the gains of reconstruction after civil war disrupted gains from the civil rights movement disrupted and actually we see you know the lag effect that happens after those periods after those periods of interruption um in the data uh, wow oh um you just well, blew my then, mind on that and one. then to not even you know point that out but to expand on that even 
I think a lot of people might point to George Floyd as being the marker, but to say, you mm. know, rewind even further to President Obama becoming um, the first black president as as the marker for the third reconstruction. Well, in in made in the election of of President Obama made it cool for black first. We saw a huge expansion of black first from legislative levels to 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 work levels and we 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 we're sleep on that a little bit and so that we we were sleep on some of those advancements in there so so thanks for 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 connecting that that kind of if if so if 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 president obama's election is the is the reconstruction period um then then george floyd becomes and this pandemic becomes the 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 definitive marker for the end of that period which then if that's the case, if I go back and look at the patterns after Reconstruction, right, we also have in that space a codification of a new method of white resistance coming to the mix as well. So there's these interesting things that if we harken back to those historical patterns, might give us, you know, to, to borrow from from Miss McGee's uh, tutelage and training growing up, you know, that Sankofa moment, look into your past to know where you're headed. Mm-hmm. No, that's exactly right. Uh, the past is is not dead, and it's not even past. So, mm. in this sense, we really need to understand. I think historically um, how these periods are connected. Um, be encouraged, right? Uh, sort of what King would say: finite disappointment, mm. but we can't lose infinite hope. So, take what we can from this. And um, an example of that he, here locally is that the chairwoman of the House Ways and Means Committee, uh, the Minnesota legislature in the House, is an African-American woman, which has never happened. So we've got um, a surplus here within the state. We've got some funds to spend for American Rescue Plan. So um, let's not retreat any more than what we have retreated from the Obama administration. Let's figure out how we can move some things forward within this space. It, it's powerful that you bring bring up Representative Moran. Um, not only is she the most powerful um, on the most powerful committee, the chair of the most powerful committee, but she has put forward a requirement. We found this out when we had Representative Mariani on the Counter Stories podcast um, that um, there's a requirement that when you come to the Ways and Means Committee, in order for your bill or your legislation to get funded, you have to um, address some kind of race equity impact statement. And have that be a part of the process. Now, of course, nothing's a cure-all, but the fact that that is happening at the legislative space, I was that that was unknown to me. That would not be in place if it wasn't um, for the presence and the work of, of Representative Moran. So that's it's it, it's powerful, and many of us may not even see that or or know that side of things. No, um, the the work that she and others have been doing for the last ten to fifteen years has been um, it's it's slow, steady grinding work um mm-hmm. it does it's, it, as you say it's not a big thunderbolt or lightning from the sky but it does make a difference um we need to continue to do that but then i think we also um paraphrasing conversation i had with her is not just simply tweak the box from time to time but we may just have to decide we just have to throw away the box and <laughs> envision a new way going forward mm-hmm. and i think um being open to that and the creative minds that exist within our community, I think we can create something very different. Yeah, it makes me think also of um, 
the announcement that recently came out, Minnesota being the first uh, state to have a task force for missing Black women. And um, I know Representative Rena Moran has advocated tirelessly uh, throughout her career for the advancement of uh, for Black women, uh, Black women's health issues. Um, and so, yeah, I huge shout out to her uh, and the work that she is doing. Lindsay, as we um, get ready to wrap up our conversation, you know, can you share with people from a legal standpoint um, the the role you feel like legislation plays in uh, outcomes that we see, specifically outcomes that produce inequities? I don't think I have enough time with a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it plays a really significant role. Um, it plays a role as to the individuals involved in the respective issue. Um, so, for example, within schools, it may impact the way in which a teacher might approach a student to suspend. It might impact it as it relates to what gets reported, so how you can hold uh, leaders accountable. So those things can be changed. And also sort of who has the ability to change things um, when you do find something amiss. And I use that as an example because as a commissioner of human rights, even though the law provided data to be provided to the Department of Education for suspensions, it was not very clear who had the ability actually to uh, change behavior once that, that data was found. Did it exist within the Department of Education? Did it exist within the Department of Human Rights? And there are some attorneys that don't think it exists in either of those two places, by the way. And then it also became a question concerning uh, teachers as well. So the law can play a role in a lot of those ways, in a lot of those different areas. But I think what's also really important is that laws come from the stories that we tell and the expectations that we have. Uh, when we think about public health, it's always talking about the expectations which we expect out of public health, which means that it moves, right, over the course mm -hmm. of time. So we should take that kind of mindset into other areas and say, this is now unacceptable, and we're drawing a line of an expectation higher than what we have had before. And the fortunate thing is that more of us are, are reaching positions like Representative Moran and other places that we can influence that, but all of us can influence that by either voting city, county, or state, or raising our voice and advocating and bringing more people to the table. As we, um, as we kind of sunset the bearing witness, this check-in with community members um, as part of the project, not the project overall as, as, as a whole, but as we sunset uh, this portion, um, I'm curious, um, it, on the issue of police accountability in Minnesota, are there things that the Humanity Center has either in the pipeline or in the works? I know you mentioned some of those check-ins that are continuation of the, or, or an expansion or moving from the uh, How Can We Breathe, which was an amazing, it was powerful to be able to participate in those, I, I got to say firsthand. Um, but are there things in the pipeline that you, or, or, or that y'all are in the works of to address those issues as it relates to the kind of broader work of the Humanity Center? Not ready quite for the reveal, but I will say a couple of things here. Um, I really appreciate the conversation, Georgia, that you had um, uh, with Fevin, I believe it is. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, really great. Uh, that conversation about the pipeline and this uh, project, because that was one of the things that we also wanted to explore 
uh, creating more employment opportunities for BIPOC reporters and journalists going forward. I think the role that public safety and how do we balance it, George again, Anthony again, great work. Uh, how do we balance creating a safe environment within our communities for not being abused and mistreated by law enforcement? And how do we strike that? I think there are some uh, opportunities for us to continue and facilitate that conversation in a way. And then I think that there are conversations as it relates to uh, the ability to redraw the line within the law and jurisprudence. Uh, again, you know, Anthony, if, if you and I get into an altercation and one of us escalates that up, the law doesn't really have any problem uh, with the individual who escalated the situation up and punishing them. Police officer ex, uh, <laughs> ratches up instead of D, uh, that, that's not problematic for the police, op police officer. So in this situation, to the extent uh, this could be an area in the law that we really need to examine and look at is to say officers may have a duty, right, to uh, decelerate sort of the tension within a situation. And to the extent that they don't, then that can be a basis upon which they could be subject to some criminal liability. I think this project has highlighted a couple of those respective areas, and I look forward to sort of working with some other new funders within this space to allow us to continue the conversation going forward. Well, and I, I think that's a, a good uh, turning point. Do you feel like the Racial Reckoning Project achieved the objectives you, you hoped it would? Oh, most definitely. I think... Um, the storytelling and, and centering the voices of community, um, it, it definitely continued um, some of the work we had started uh, about truth and reconciliation within the media. And I know that there are media officials that are very interested to, to continue or try to figure out how we continue this conversation going forward. Conversations that we've had with uh, police chief or not police chief, uh, commissioner of public safety, uh, Harrington, and then also our Attorney General, um, Keith Ellison, I think that, again, there are some ways in which to facilitate some ongoing conversation about how we address this issue of public safety. I think now we just have to figure it out. And hopefully, uh, we'll be able to find some additional nickels and dimes and quarters out of that $7.7 billion to uh, be mm. able to facilitate that conversation going forward. Oh, I like the way you did that. That was real good. <laughs> that was real slick. Well, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, we we want to take this opportunity as one of the folks who who was the brainchild and supporter and him lifter up of this project to be able to give any any final message for listeners as we move into our kind of sunsetting of bearing witness. Um, and we also still have to do what we do every single bearing witness with our guests, and that is check in with how you're doing. The unique aspect here is. Being our first guest, we get to compare <laughs> where you were as we checked in with you in episode one and uh, check in with you and how you're doing now as we live through this, this reckoning. So I want to give you a chance to, to lead us out in our question um, and our second to last time being able to do this with uh, ch check in. Well, actually, our last time being able to check in with a community member. Um, how are you being you in this moment as we uh, get ready to sunset bearing witness? Well, I... I feel that we've made some progress. 
um, not just with this, but in a larger community. Um, We did have a conviction. Can't overlook that. Um, I remember being around the table when uh, Mr. Jamar Clark was killed. And it was still on the books that no one from the Minneapolis Police Department had to give any statement, even if they were involved in the shooting for 72 hours. So um, that's a decade, you know, (laughs) even a decade on that. So uh, I'm thankful for that. I'm still um, mindful and still thinking that we have to be very careful not to be so satisfied with the progress that we've made that we take our eye off the prize Mm -hmm. and that there is work to be done and to continue to uh, educate individuals, prepare individuals for leadership going forward on these respective issues. But uh, really grateful for the work that you did, really grateful for the work that Georgia did as well. So I'm, I'm happy with that. Ms. Georgia, how are you being you in this moment? By leaning into trial coverage and <laughs> continuing to be in the community and amplify the voices of of our leaders um, to continue presenting, you know, unique and different perspectives that sometimes you don't see and, and hear in mainstream media. So I am fully engrossed in work and uh, working overtime, but definitely um, preparing for the holidays and looking forward to be able to unplug for a couple of days um, and just be with the family. I love it. I love it. Um, for me in this moment, um, you all have gotten to be a part of my transition from um, newly ordained clergy to being appointed by the bishop to a church um, in 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 very fast order. And so I'm transitioning from a place of of you know thinking about as we've talked about today, our the 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 work we have to do legislatively, the work we have to do organizing around. Um, but now I'm in a space of having to care for and administer in a more official and direct way. Um, the spiritual needs of a community of folks who are asking the question, what does this mean for who we are? What does this mean for the moral fiber? You know, um, the you know the full title of this project is Racial Reckoning, the Arc of Justice. And being in a space of having to contend with who we are as a nation, what is, the, what is our moral being as individuals, but what is our moral being as a community and what is our moral being as a nation have become the front and center conversation for the folks I now have to serve in a more direct way. And so how I'm being me in this moment as we wrap up here, I'm getting ready to um, go to our Bible study and the subject of our Bible study lesson is going to be justice in biblical context. And so I'm being me right now by, 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 by making the shift along with my parishioners. We have to ask that, answer that question and all of these questions that we have, but especially who are we going to be at the end of this? Because it is, as, as you said earlier, um, uh, Brother Kevin Lindsay, the, the price of consciousness in the United States cannot continue to be the blood of black, brown, and indigenous bodies. It just cannot. It is not an acceptable sacrifice at the altar of this thing we call America. And so we have to figure out a new way of being. And in all of these questions, we also have to address who we are going to be as a nation and be able to answer that question in a way that stands up to whatever universe creator, whatever our higher power that you may um, tap into. You're going to have to account for that question as individuals, and we're going to have to account for that question um, as communities. 
And so I think it's high time for us to begin to think about if we are going to answer that question honestly, it's going to require us to make some changes towards that arc for justice. Uh, Brother Kevin Lindsay, I thank you so much for being with us, for being a part of launching this project and this work to do a new thing and to and to kind of move the needle and, and say, hey, there's a different way to do things out here and we are going to support that work. And so I really appreciate um, you and the support of, of, of being able to do that. We close our show with our motto every 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 week. And so you were the first, and we're going to uh, give it over to Ms. Georgia to close us out right. In the words of Dr. Joy Lewis, may the revolution be healing. Georgia, can you and Anthony continue to be part of that healing. Thank you for what you're doing. Well, thank you. Appreciate you. So for the listeners here, this is our second to the last show. And so we invite you to join us next week as uh, Miss George and I together do some recap, do some connecting on um, kind of our next steps in different areas as we as we continue to do that work, but then also kind of capstone this community check-in um, side of the Racial Reckoning, the Arc of Justice project. So we invite you to join us for our final episode next week, whether you're downloading this podcast or, or hearing us on one of the many Ampers radio stations. Um, make sure that you take some time for yourself to ask yourself, how are you being you in this moment? We'll see you next week. Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia is a production of Racial Reckoning, the Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities. In partnership with KMLJ Radio, the Minnesota Humanities Center, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Mm-hmm.